Well, here we are, John chapter 4. Please join me in verse 46. We have a long text this morning. It's going to take us all the way to 518. Uh, but for the time being, uh, well, we're not really for the time being. I'm just going to read the first three verses so that we get the, uh, a brief context established, pray, and then we'll look to the Lord in his word. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46, reads, So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, that's a portion of God's word this morning. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we, we believe, help our unbelief. Father, I pray this morning that with your word, you would send your spirit to work with your word to accomplish in each and every one of our hearts all that is necessary for us to treasure Christ. To turn away from any notions or vestiges of self-righteousness and self-reliance and to wholly rely upon Christ who is our Savior. If there's any friends here who don't yet know you, Lord, would you please save them in this place? To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, here are the three points, the outline for the message this morning. Uh, they work to serve the broader picture of what this long passage is showing us. Point number one, we're going to see, be reminded that Jesus alone gives eternal life. And that's his first episode of healing with this nobleman's son in verses 46 to 54. And after seeing Jesus alone gives eternal life, then we'll move into the second point. Jesus alone gives eternal wholeness. And that's the first nine verses of chapter 5. And then we will close our time, and the darkness wants to kill Jesus. And that is verses 9 through 18 in John chapter 5. So Jesus alone gives eternal life. Jesus alone gives eternal wholeness, and the darkness wants to kill Jesus for those reasons. Well, you'll see why in a few moments. Let's look at the first point. Jesus alone gives eternal life. Uh, look at this first episode of healing that we are encountering together as we follow Jesus in the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked Jesus to come down and heal his son, for the son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. This man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, 
and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So Jesus, or not Jesus, the man asked them the hour when he had begun to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at one o'clock, the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Well, so is contained this first episode of healing that we're seeing here in the Gospel of John. A royal official has traveled a very good distance, some uh, think about 20 to 25 miles, to to ask Jesus... For Jesus to travel back with him to his house to heal his son. Now, some of our translations say government official. Other translations say nobleman. Others simply say official. Uh, And that's because this man was tied to the Roman government. And because he was tied to the Roman government, he was a royal official, it's widely accepted and presumed that he is a Gentile. That is, not an ethnic Jew. Now, that's a presumption. The text doesn't say, but because he's connected again with the Roman government, it's believed that he is at least not Jewish. And so I agree with that. That's the position I'm going to take as we look at the text this morning. Now, what's going to happen? We have... Now, think about where we've been as we've followed Jesus together in the shoes of his disciples. We have followed Jesus already in chapter 2, from Cana, where he did his first sign, down into Jerusalem, where he was in the temple. And now here we are in chapter 4, and Jesus is once again going into Cana of Galilee. And then we're going to see in the beginning of 5, once again going to Jerusalem because of a feast. We have followed Jesus to Jerusalem, where he was challenged and rejected by the religious leaders. Then we followed Jesus into Samaria, where not only an outcast Samaritan woman believed in Jesus, but then she went and told this gospel to her village and they came out and they believed in Jesus. And so Jesus has now returned back to Galilee, to Cana, and a Gentile official has come to him asking for Jesus to heal his son. So I want you to note the ethnicities. In, In the end of John 2, he is in Jerusalem having a showdown, a a biblical battle, so to speak, with the religious leaders in John 2. Then he travels, after meeting with Nicodemus, to Samaria, where he meets with a a half-breed, was their perspective. A a mixed ethnicity non-Jew who thought they were Jews, a Samaritan. You can go back and listen to those messages. But now Jesus has returned back to Israel, and it's presumed that this Gentile, a full-blooded, non-Jew, pagan, has come to Christ asking for the healing of his son. Now, unlike what we just saw Jesus do with the Samaritan woman, where he was sitting by the well, and she came out, and then he... She wasn't even going to talk to Jesus, and then he initiates conversation with her and asks for water. Here, this Gentile comes to Jesus, and he initiates conversation with Jesus. He approaches Jesus about his dying son, and then I wonder how you 
read verse 48. Meaning, Jesus' response to this nobleman seems very different from his response to the Samaritan woman. Look at what, what Jesus says in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, so to him, the royal official, he's probably looking in the royal official's eyes, and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, this sounds rude and dismissive upon the first hearing. And there is rebuke in these words. So this Gentile guy is being rebuked because his son is dying. And if you pay attention to the text, he's called a, the, the royal official. But then later he just becomes the man and then the father. His, his uh, civic identity has no bearing in even his ethnicity. He is just a guy with a sick son who wants Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says this. And this man is likely begging Jesus to do something about it. So is Jesus callously dismissing this man and the dying boy? And why does there seem to be such a contrast between here, this episode in Cana of Galilee, and then in Samaria, the Samaritan woman in that village? Well, there's a few clues to answer these questions. And these clues in the text help us recognize that Jesus is, on the one hand, offering a rebuke, and on the other hand, saying something profound. You'll see what I mean. In verse 48, Jesus said to him, speaking to the, 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 the official, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, something is lost on us in English here. Uh, your translation likely is going to have a little number or a letter that's going to direct you to footnote down, probably to the bottom of your Bible, and it's going to tell you that the you is plural. So it's a, it's a it's a y'all. And what Jesus is doing is he is looking at this man. This man has asked for healing, but Jesus is talking not just to the man. In fact, Jesus is primarily talking to others, the crowds who are around. Jesus is using this request of this royal official and Jesus' response to the royal official to actually talk to all of the ethnically Jewish onlookers here in Cana. So Jesus then, when he says, unless you all see signs and you all see wonders, you all will not believe. What Jesus is doing is he is doing nothing more than what he's already told us about the hearts of people. And specifically, his own countrymen. For example, if you look up a few verses to verses 43 and 45, uh, listen to this. Jesus has said... This is, he, he's leaving Samaria. It says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. And then, verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So, verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that Jesus had done in the Jerusalem feast back in chapter 2, for they too had gone to that feast where Jesus overturned the, the money tables and drove out the animals, made the whip, and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. 
verse 44 is the key. You see, from a uh, social perspective, the Galileans are welcoming Jesus. But we see from verse 44, Jesus has already testified a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Meaning, the Galileans and the people of Cana and all of Israel is welcoming Jesus back into town because he had been gone in Samaria, but they're not welcoming him because they honor him. They're welcoming him because they want to see his tricks. And we'll see that in a moment. Because that's what they think his healings are. The irony is that Jesus knew he would get no honor from them. So when he's speaking to the noblemen, he's actually speaking to the crowds, and he's issuing a rebuke to them. Because it appears this man is making an unbelievable request of Jesus. My son is dying. Heal him. And the crowd's like, ooh, I'd like to see that. But they're not, so they don't want to see it because they want to honor Jesus. They want to see a miracle. So it's the sad irony that, yeah, they're welcoming Jesus. Hey, good to see you. Thanks for coming back. But, but what we discover then is what's in their hearts. So if you go back to chapter 2, which the author John is already alluding to, in 2, 23 to 25, listen to this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, our text just told us that these people had been in Jerusalem, so they're part of that group. Verse 24 of chapter 2, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So so these verses in chapter 4 and then back in chapter 2 pull back the curtains. They, They lift the hood and let you see the engine of what's really going on in the hearts of these people. So what Jesus is doing is he's using his word as a mirror that when he says these things, it's revealing to these onlookers that... That what they want to see is not so much Jesus, just a cool trick. So he's simply revealing their own hearts back to them in this rebuke. They want to see signs. They want to see wonders. They want to see miracles. It's kind of like they're saying, Hey, Jesus, show us something fancy. It was really exciting to see you have that showdown in Jerusalem when you made the whip and drove out the animals and did some signs and wonders there. We want to see more of those, Jesus. But what Jesus is revealing in all of these passages is they want to see miracles, but they don't care about the miracle worker. They want what Jesus can give, but they don't want Jesus. Let me say that again. They want what Jesus can give, but they won't want, or they don't want Jesus. It's like this saying that you can have all of the trappings of the new heavens and new earth, a new glorified body, and if all of that is appealing to you and not having Christ, that's actually hell. Because Jesus himself is what it's all about. And specifically, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this crowd was was wowed, but they weren't humbling themselves. 
They were excited, but not interested in repenting. They wanted the spectacle, but they didn't want the Savior. And it appears for them, the dying boy was another spectacle, another just cool thing to see. And so Jesus offers rebuke as he's looking at this this man. Now, now pause here for a moment, because this is the first time that we're seeing a, a, a healing take place. Uh, in the gospel, and when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that all over those gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there's healings and um, exorcisms, right? Demons are cast out, and all of these amazing miracles take place. Have you ever wondered why? Because I think, at root, we tend to think that, well, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's come, and, and so he's got to do these kind of cool, amazing signs to prove that he's that, Kind of, sort of, maybe. There's a lot more going on. What do I I mean? If you think back to the previous episode, before the official son, the Samaritan woman has just reminded us that Jesus is the Messiah, who is called the Christ. That takes us back to chapter 1, when when Andrew met Jesus, then Andrew went and got Peter, and when he went and got Peter, he said, we found the Messiah. So we are supposed to remember that every time we're seeing Jesus... Christ is not his last name, it's a title. It's the Greek version of Messiah. Okay, so what? What does it have to do with signs and wonders? What does it have to do with healings? It has everything to do with healings. What do I mean? The Old Testament and all the writing prophets promise a Savior was coming. God in the flesh. The Son of God, Son of David. But this savior the messiah or the christ would also be the new and last adam meaning just like old father adam plunged the human race you and i into sin and mischief and mayhem and rebellion against god this messiah would come and when this messiah came he would undo all the wrongs of our first father when we read in genesis 3 that god cursed the earth The effects of the fall, not only changing human nature and killing our hearts and making them dead to God, part of what happened in the fall was the introduction of the curse. And the curse is sickness and disease and disability and all manner of ailments and most of all, The most debilitating deformity that you and I all possess is what the Bible calls sin. Hearts dead to God, living in rebellion against him, or what John here calls darkness. Darkness. So why are healings and casting out demons so significant? Because it's Jesus as the new Adam taking the glorified future into the present and undoing the curse. He's reversing the curse. He's re- so, so Jesus healing people and casting out demons is the most normal thing that Jesus can do. Sickness is abnormal. Disability is abnormal. Demonic activity is abnormal. Jesus is normal. And so, so Jesus as the Messiah and the new Adam coming, when he is talking to this royal official, and, and he's asking Jesus to heal his dying son because death is abnormal... We were created to live forever. Because it's abnormal and death is merely a separation of body from spirit, 
That's why these healings, that's why the gospel accounts, that's why Jesus is always healing and doing all of these things because it shows that he is the Messiah, the new Adam, who is bringing in the future glorified sinless reality into the present. And everybody misses it. The crowds miss it. The crowd just wants to see a miracle for a miracle's sake. They don't even care to think about the new Adam himself as walking right in front of them. They want to show in a spectacle, not realizing it's the inbreaking of the new creation. But not the Father. He was there for a single purpose. Jesus, heal my son. And little did the father know that more than his son was going to be healed. Look again at verse 49. The official said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Okay, now note this. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at one, the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And then now note this, and he himself believed. So he believed, believed. And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So the man believed the word that Jesus, who is the word made flesh, spoke to him. This man, this this noble official, contrary to all of his known experience from his perspective, Jesus said it and so he believed it. Do you see the exchange Please come travel these many miles back to my house to heal my son. And Jesus simply responded, go and your son will live. And the man believed. How is that possible? Only one way is it possible. His heart had been changed. He'd asked Jesus to come with him. And somehow, some way, John 3 tells us he was born again by the Spirit. This man recognized that time and space were no barrier for the work of Christ. They weren't a barrier for him then, and not a barrier for him now. Sickness and sorrow are not a barrier to Jesus' activity. No, there is no barrier to Jesus' activity. And with a word from Jesus, this man turned, and he went home because he has faith. Some measure of faith. I wonder... Because this, the way that time has collapsed in our text, you can kind of miss it. But when do you see when he meets his servants? It's the next day. So, so maybe 24 hours or more have transpired. So he rushes to Jesus, begs Jesus. Jesus says the word. He believes Jesus. He then, did he not rush home? Had his heart so changed in trust of Christ that He knew Jesus said it, so Jesus will do it, so I don't need to go home. Whatever reason it was, maybe he was exhausted from racing to Christ and he had to stay a night. Maybe all manner of speculation. 
But either way, about a day or so later, he is intercepted by his servants who've come to him because they're coming to tell him, hey, the fever broke. You've regained your son. And do you see the response in verse 53? Two, two responses. He himself believed. So something happened to his belief. It got fortified. He had a measure of faith when Jesus said, go, your son will be made well. But then now something happens here where he believes. It makes me think of the man in a different parable and a different gospel account where he stands in the back of the synagogue and he's, he's hitting his chest and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, this man, he believes and then all his household. You see, this man believed Jesus, not just that Jesus would heal his son and do the miracle that the crowds wanted to see, but now in verse 53, this man is converted. He's born again. We know what happened. John 3 happened. The Holy Spirit happened. He was born from above, and now when this word came that Jesus did what Jesus said, this man believed, and he became a believer and follower of Christ, this Gentile. To whatever extent Jesus was rebuking this man, also about signs and wonders possibly, back in verse 48, this text makes clear, and a sweet irony, just as in the beginning of chapter 2 when Jesus turned water to wine, remember how many people believed? Just a few. The servants who got the, the new wine and the master of the feast. And here once again in Galilee, there's crowds now, but they don't witness this. Do you see who the audience of the actual miracle is? Or the sign is? It's just this noble man and his household. His servants, his kids, his spouse. And you catch the result. This man becomes like the Samaritan woman. What do I mean? You see, we're getting these portraits over and over again of what happens to people who have a true encounter with Christ. Their hearts get changed, but not silently, vocally. What do I mean? What happened to the Samaritan woman? She leaves her empty water bucket at the well, races back into town and says, Come and see, come and hear a man who told me all that I ever did. And then out comes the crowds of the town to go see Jesus. And Jesus preaches and they all get saved. What happens to this guy? It says that he believed, and then just almost as a throwaway statement at the end of verse 53, and all his household. How is that possible? Because this nobleman became a Christian man, and he evangelized his household. It's almost evangelism in reverse. What what do I mean? From the household's perspective, we don't know if they woke up one morning and the nobleman was gone. We, we, it's all speculation. All we know is that he came and they knew that he went somewhere so that the servants could find him, but they probably knew he was going to Jesus. But all they knew is that he's going to some Jewish miracle worker and all of a sudden the fever breaks and the boy lives. But they don't know Jesus either. It wasn't the sign that saved. It was the word that this man carried that when he went back and was met with his servants and to his household, that when he told them it was Jesus who healed, they heard, they saw, they believed. It's a mini Good Samaritan episode. 
all over again, he shares the gospel with his household, meaning anybody who was old enough to understand and believe the gospel believed and got saved. And the result of this was that the second sign that Jesus did, he was showing himself to truly be the Messiah, to truly be the last Adam, to truly be the one who can give eternal life. And that is the sweet irony of all the ironies filled in this book. Why did the official go to Jesus? Not Jesus save me. Not Jesus give me eternal life. Jesus, my son, is sick. And so what Jesus does is says, I'll save your son and I'm going to save you too. And your other kids and your wife and your servants. So he came looking for a physical salvation and Jesus drenched them with spiritual salvation and gave them the son back. That, that's what kind of God Jesus is. The true God. Doing far above abundantly all that we can ask or think. And it's this episode of, of this Gentile and his household Getting saved sets us up for the next point, and this was the longest point, by the way. Point number two, Jesus alone gives eternal wholeness. The episode changes, chapter 5, verse 1. Look along with me all the way to the beginning of verse 9. I think chapter 2, Cana, wedding, Jerusalem, feast. Now we're in end of John 4, Cana, uh, healing, Now we go down to Jerusalem. John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus alone gives eternal wholeness. Now, Jesus is this next episode. He's traveled to Jerusalem. It's another feast. The feast is unnamed. But John is taking pains to make us think what we saw happen at the end of chapter 2 is probably going to happen again. This time, Jesus is not going to the temple yet, though he will, but he's going to a pool. And apparently at this big pool, we see that there are multitudes of people. There's just crowds of people of all manner of sickness. And we're going to see in the next point that the Jews, the religious leaders, also appear to be present. But Jesus is blending in with the crowd. And one man, he's been an invalid for 38 years, and he's singled out by Jesus. And Jesus asks him a question 
that has spilt mountains of ink and speculation. He just simply says to him, do you want to be healed? What, what do you think the guy's answer is? Everyone knows the answer. The answer is, of course he wants to be healed. I would love to have been there. What, what was Jesus' tone like? And what was the expression on his face when he was speaking to this, this poor man? The answer, on the one hand, is obvious. Of course he wants to be healed. But we just saw Jesus do something spectacular, didn't we? A guy came to Jesus saying, heal my son, and then Jesus gave him all eternal life. I wonder what's going to happen to this guy. Any guesses? So the answer is obvious on the face of it, but then with Jesus, nothing is ever so obvious. We don't know how long this man has been laying there, but it seems like he's been laying there for a very long time. I mean, it, it, it could be decades, right? It, it could be speculating. It could be that, um, you know, if he is now in his, who knows how old he is. We don't know why he's an invalid. Um, it might be because he may have sinned. It might not be. We're not entirely sure. The text kind of sounds like it, but may not be the case. But either way, this man is there, and, and, and maybe his family has stopped coming to him because he wants to get put in this water, but no one's there to put him in the water. Does he not have family? It's all speculation, but all we know is that this man is alone and isolated, and no one is there to help him. Everyone beats him to the punch. This guy cannot get a break in life. Um, For whatever his understanding of God is, it certainly seems like ripe and fertile soil to think that God is against him. Um, That's what Calvin says. It had taken away all hope for a cure. The way the text sets this up is this man cannot move. He sees this water and he thinks if he can just get to the water, he can be healed. That's what he thinks. And what we see here, a sad irony, is that this passage is strongly implying that this man believed, along with probably all the people who were there, that some sort of superstition... Some sort of magic was about this water. If it stirred and you got to it first, you were healed. So they thought. It never says it happened. And and so what we see then is these people, of all ironies, are putting their hope in rituals, in superstitions, in holy objects, in talismans. Someone go get me a magic rock. Someone weave something and put it over my bed. Someone draw an image for me. If we can conjure up this thing, then we can be healed. Right here in the heart of Jerusalem, by the temple itself, these people had erected an object of of false ritual, false talismans, false superstition, because there's no such thing. And so this man was having hope in something that was false. But little did this man know that the one who gives living water was looking into his very eyes, do you want to be healed? He didn't know that water couldn't save him. Only Jesus could. This man didn't know, apparently, that rituals and talismans could not heal him. Only Jesus could. And so Jesus 
does, because that's what Jesus is like. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. Once again, the Messiah has reversed the curse with a word. The light of the world gave the living water to this man, and he leapt up, and he leapt away. Praise God. With a word, Jesus could throw back death, and with a word, Jesus abled the disabled. Jesus can heal in this life, to be sure, but what this man experienced was not just the rehabilitating of his body, it was the restoration and re-giving of a new soul. This man is getting born again. That's why he could leap up. He was a new creation in Christ, and he didn't even know it yet. All he knew is that he believed. Jesus said it, and he did it. Just like the royal official in the previous episode. And what this man does, one thing it points to, because there is a point and a word for us here to take notice of. Jesus does not always heal in this life. Think about when the Apostle Paul was afflicted by a demonic spirit. And he prayed three times for the Lord to take that demonic spirit away. And Jesus said, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so the Apostle Paul, who could cast out demons, couldn't cast out this demonic spirit who was afflicting him. That needs to factor in our understanding of angelology and demonology. But that's a different sermon. Sometimes in life we have sicknesses because of sin. Sometimes we have sicknesses because God allows it to to be in our lives for the sake of humbling us. God is always doing 10,000 times 10,000 things. And everything that he does is to shape us into the image of Christ. And to make us effective um, disciple makers in this present age. But what we see happening in this man who is made whole in that moment points to the ultimate wholeness that we will experience in glory when sin is finally and fully eradicated from our hearts and the physical effects of the fall from us. I remember in college, uh, one of my roommates, Kenny, was colorblind. We were evil people. And we would play tricks on him on his clothes that he would wear. We would dress him in lots of pink. We've repented of that partially. Part of it makes me happy. But one thing that we would talk about with Kenny is we would sit at 2 a.m. while he was wearing pink shirts thinking that it was blue. We would talk to him and, and we would wonder about how amazing his experience of glory when he went to go see Jesus is is he would have an experience that we wouldn't in the sense that he would also see color for the first time and how marvelous that might be. And, uh, and it was, then we would tease him because we were horrible people. But he had this, this, uh, this, this, this opportunity that we didn't have. He was going to have an experience with Jesus that we didn't have. I, I remember uh, another man, Warren. Warren was at our church and Warren... Um, had a had a very small torso and 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 deformed limbs and deformed legs and um, 
a horrible singing voice. And this man would just praise Jesus at church because he loved the Lord so. He's with Jesus now. His ministry as a severely disabled man was to other disabled people to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and the hope and wholeness that they would get on that final day. Uh, what an amazing gift he was to the church for the short time that we had him. This man was made whole. And there is a day for all of us. Whatever your species of sin, sorrow, suffering, and, and shame that we can see, all of those things, you see, really... Sin itself is the ultimate disability. What it does to deaden our souls and our hearts, uh, our, our minds, our perspectives. In one sense, the physical disability can be a metaphor in one sense of, of what happens to the bent chassis of our own souls when, when sin has its way with us. And so there's a day coming when Jesus will finally eradicate for for us believers, the sin that remains in us. And, and friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that's what happens to these people. They don't just get physically healed, they get spiritually healed because Jesus takes their sin onto the cross, dies for it, and gives them his righteousness. And so this man points to an ultimate time when healing is coming. Sin will be removed. Our bodies will be made whole and glorified. And oh, glorious day, how amazing it will be for then for the rest of eternity, for 10 billion years into the future, when we think back about how good God is and how Warren is not in a wheelchair anymore and Kenny can see with perfect sight. And then we all can see without sin in our own lives. Hallelujah. But you know what? You say those things, and that's point number three. The darkness wants to kill Jesus for those very reasons. John 5, verse 9b, right? The back half of the verse. Now that day was the Sabbath. The lighting changes, and the music says, dun-dun-dun. That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, that the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had hidden himself. He'd withdrawn in the crowd as there was a crowd in the place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So we're in the temple again. And said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking to seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal 
with God. And so ends this episode. Now it goes on, Lord willing, next week into a long discourse from Jesus that we'll look at that will help shed light on the end of this text. But for now what we see is that Jesus performs this healing on Saturday, the Sabbath. And apparently the religious leaders saw this man carrying his mat. So, so the scene, it appears to be multitudes of people. Uh, this guy gets healed. He pops up and he rolls up his mat and he's walking around. And then the Jews are there and they say, that's not lawful. Right? They blow their whistle. No running on the pool deck. It's not lawful for you to pick up a mat and walk somewhere. It's the Sabbath. You see, apparently the religious leaders saw this man carrying the mat, and the man got in trouble and rebuked for breaking their religious rules, not God's. Search high and low in your Bible, and you will see no such instruction in the Bible for rules of the Sabbath under the Mosaic Covenant. No such thing. But here's the sad irony. The Samaritan woman heard Jesus speak of living water and she believed and evangelized her town. The royal official heard Jesus speak of healing the dying boy and so he believed and evangelized his household. This man hears Jesus say, get up. And he even goes and responds to the rebuke of these religious leaders. And I don't know Jesus' name, but I know I'm healed. And they want to kill Jesus for it. Notice the different types of responses of these people to Jesus when Jesus does Jesus-type things. It's chapter 2 all over again. In Cana, some got saved. Goes down to Jerusalem. It's a showdown. Now the invalid was saved and healed, but the religious leaders, their hearts are hardened. The light of Jesus has been shining in all manner of darkness, and this gospel account is teaching us a very sad pattern. The closer you get to those who actually had God's word, were the ones furthest away from God himself. And that is a bitter irony. What do I mean? The Samaritans, right, the half-breeds as they viewed them, they had the first five books of Moses. She knew there was the Messiah, but she was wrong in her understanding of theology, but even so, she got saved. The Gentile man, we have no, no indication that he knew anything about Judaism, other than there was a man named Jesus who was healing people, so he went to Jesus and he got saved. But now here... If we peeked ahead to the end of of, of John 5, we're going to discover that Jesus says to them, if you're not going to believe Moses, you're not going to believe me. If you're not going to believe Moses, you cannot believe the signs that I do. If you can't believe your Bible, you won't believe what I say because Jesus is the Bible made flesh. One commentator notes the, the ironies. He says, there's a surprising irony surrounding this scene. One day... Drowns out 38 years. The Jews only see violation and they don't see a miracle. A man who sits by a pool waiting for a magical stirring of the pool waters goes unquestioned for years, but is questioned on the same day when his healing occurs on the Sabbath. In other words, think about that. Multitudes of people 
have turned a body of water into a magic pool. They're sinning against their Bibles and God himself by believing that they can be healed by going into those waters. And the religious leaders, as the lifeguards, are standing there, not doing or saying anything about it for years upon years upon years. This guy gets healed. The miracle actually happens. They're not even shocked. They're not even excited. They blow the whistle of self-righteousness. It's a sad irony. Their man-made regulations were more important that God made mercy and healing. You see, God established principles and regulations for the Sabbath under the Mosaic Covenant. What the religious leaders did is they thought, hmm, I think that we can be more godly than God. So we're going to establish our own man-made principles to cover over. We're going to over-theologize the text. We're going to add more to the text of Scripture. And in doing so, they hardened their hearts by going beyond what God's Word said by establishing their own rules. Hmm. That's God's standard of righteousness. I'm going to go ahead and establish my own standard of righteousness built on top of, of God's. And this was all under the guise of godliness. And this brings us back then to the final summary. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Not God's version of the Sabbath. Their man-made version of the Sabbath. Verse 17 But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now we'll get into this passage more next time, Lord willing, but for now, we need to see that the Jews not only persecuted Jesus, they sought to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. Jesus alone gives eternal life. Jesus alone gives eternal wholeness. And the darkness wants to kill Jesus for it. And that is because the darkness, we've already learned, hates the light and does not come to the light because his deeds are evil. These chapters, 2, 3, and 4, in the beginning of 5, bring to a close a unit here in the Gospel of John, of increasing ironies and contrasts as different people encounter and respond to Jesus in different ways. And so the question, my friends, is this. These people are all mirrors. In other words, and in all honesty, where do you land among this crowd? Perhaps you, you answer that quietly in your mind, but where would Jesus say you fall in this crowd? Are, are you like the multitudes who were listening to the royal official ask Jesus to heal his son? And these multitudes who didn't care about Jesus, they just wanted to see the miracles. So, so what they wanted was the benefits of Jesus without Jesus. The Bible calls that a false convert. 
sometimes calling that churchianity. You see, the equivalent, I think, that fits in today is people who think that just by going to church, that makes you a Christian. Or being a a moral person who embraces Judeo-Christian principles saves you. Listen, sitting in church makes you as much of a Christian as sitting in your garage makes you a car. But the Bible speaks of such a thing where we can have a false notion. If you think that if you do the right things, and that's what gives you favor with God, that actually gives you more disfavor with God. Christianity is not about your performance at all. It's about Christ's performance. And then when you believe Christ's performance and he makes you a new creation, you do begin to live differently. So you can have two people who live what look like holy lives for two completely different reasons. The religious leaders who were false converts obeyed thinking that they put themselves in God's favor and the disciples obeyed because they already had God's favor. It looks the same, and there's a universe apart. Friend, you have may have been attending church your entire life. It was the right thing to do. It's the good Christian thing to do. Are you a Christian? How do you know? You might say that, well, yeah, one day, sometime far away in my past, I was baptized. But if you were baptized, which does not save you, and then the rest of your life looks no different, that you lived like hell, as it were, you are not saved. We are supposed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But that fruit is born because we depend upon Jesus. Not denying hardship. Not denying seasons of remaining sin and wrestling with those things. But I am saying, friends, that the Bible calls us to soberly look into our hearts and ask, am I in Christ? Do I trust Jesus and his righteousness alone dying on the cross for my sins for my salvation and his rightness his righteousness given to me or do I trust something else if comparison well I'm not as bad as that person or I'm not as if you have comparison as the measure of your salvation you're not saved Friends, this is a sober wake-up call to not be like the multitudes who wanted all that Jesus could give and not want Jesus. Are you in Christ? Have you repented and live a life of repentance and trusting yourself to Jesus? Or are you good and you've got things covered and life's in order and... You know, maybe Jesus can give a good moral tune-up now and then. Maybe he can get a good sermon in there once in a while of seven techniques for a better marriage because the problem's your spouse anyways. And so you're you're covered. Like the religious leaders. It's it's self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. The attitude of a Christian is... But for the grace of God, there go I. The attitude of a Christian is, I am the chief of sinners. And and when we begin to think that we've got it covered, we become like the self-righteous Pharisees who who know the Bible and don't know God. And they turn out not to know Bible at all. These are gracious invitations of repentance for us to look into our own hearts and to do business with Christ. And maybe you don't know Christ, friend. This, this is a, he is a willing Savior. 
His arms are spread wide in a welcoming embrace to receive you when you turn from your sins. Or are you like the invalid who who hears Jesus' words and leaps at them, eager to put away sin and follow Christ? Are, Are you like the father of the sick son? Jesus says it and I believe it. Jesus commands it and it is done. Friend, do you believe in Jesus? Keep believing. One of the things, the distractions for us, one of the reasons, I think one of the many reasons of God's wisdom in us assembling as the body of Christ weekly to sit under the preaching of the word and to sing songs of praise back to God and to say these prayers, one of God's reasons for doing those things is so that we'd be reminded of the gospel, reminded that Jesus even saves people like us. We're easily distracted. We can be easily seduced by all manner of other things. And the Bible, every Sunday, is a rally point for us to recalibrate around the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ and Him crucified. So if by Saturday evening, Christ and Him crucified is not your main thing, part of what we do here is to remember, like the Father, like the invalid, what would have been like? To have been there and, and, and been recipients of that type of salvation. You are a recipient of that type of salvation. But we forget. So friends, part of the gracious reminder is for us to keep Christ central. And to, to put ourselves in the shoes of these people. And to remember that they've been saved and we have been saved too. And in being saved, we have all these promises of eternal life and wholeness in the future to come. Amen? Lord, we thank you that your cross is where our unrighteousness was hung and where your righteousness has been dispensed. Given freely like gems and jewels and treasures bestowed upon us, people entirely unworthy of your love. And yet, O oh Lord, Father, you sent, yourself, you sent your Son because you so love the world loving us. So Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Save in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we will now participate in the Lord's table together. If you uh, don't have the cracker and cup in front of you, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Uh, If you are a Um, If you're visiting and you don't know Christ, please just observe this strange thing that we do that is emblematic of Jesus' body broken on the cross and his blood spilt for us. Friends, we know that this is the sign of the new covenant. Let's remember this covenant that Christ has made with us. I invite you to begin to open it. Perhaps pray with someone that you came with. Reflect on God's word to you this morning. And I'll lead us to partake in a few moments. Keep those hands high, please.